The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now for our featured presentation. Russians. This ain't gonna be easy. Not as easy as it used to be. Well, we've been through worse. Yeah, when? Flensburg, there was twice as many. We were younger. I still am young. We had guns. Put your hands down, will you? You're embarrassing us. Bet you 500 bucks we get out of this. Let's call it a hundred. You're a nice building, yes? Drop dead. I'm sorry. I'm a drop dead comrade. this patreon exclusive episode of how was this movie my name is dana buckler and thank you all so much for your support in 1999 my excitement level for the new star wars film episode one the phantom menace was maxed out now i've done an entire episode on my reactions to the first star wars prequel just go back and check out the episode entitled star wars part one the phantom mistakes i bring this up because after seeing episode one i lied to myself i walked out of the movie theater saying That was a great movie, because I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that a Star Wars movie could possibly be bad. Now, I've since come to grips with the Star Wars prequels, and now in my older age, I've grown to, eh, accept them a little bit. I respect George Lucas for trying something completely different. I still don't think it worked out, but you have to respect that he tried to do something outside the box. Another lesson I learned after The Phantom Menace was to never ever let your expectations for a movie get to the point that you will ignore obvious flaws in the film. Something that I will admit was easier said than done. Case in point, May 22nd, 2008, a Friday. A Friday in which I took the day off from work. Now, the reason I took the day off from work was I was not going to miss the first opportunity to see the brand new Indiana Jones film. Now, I've always been a big fan of the Indiana Jones franchise. Obviously, I'm working on this extensive look at not only the history of the films, but the filmmakers behind them. But I don't think that I, no, 
that's not the right thing to say. I know for a fact that I hadn't matured yet when it came to understanding that it was possible for my hero, Steven Spielberg, to make a bad movie. If you would have asked me in 2008 if The Terminal was a good film, I would have defended it with my last breath. I would have blindly followed Mr. Spielberg into any cinema that was showing one of his movies. I would have walked out of those theaters convinced that I had just seen a masterpiece. Going back to Friday, May 22nd, 2008, like I said, no work that day. I bought my tickets. I sat in the theater. The lights went down. The trailers played. And the movie started. And when it was over, I remember walking back to my car. Now, I didn't have that delightful feeling that I was used to getting from Steven Spielberg films. Yes, I know, delightful doesn't always apply to his movies. Think for a second there about Munich, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List, The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, definitely not 1941. I guess AI would make the list. You know, come to think of it, he's made a lot of movies that are just kind of depressing. So I take back that whole saying about that delightful feeling. I think instead what I mean is I didn't walk out of the theater saying I had just seen a perfect film. No, I had walked out of the theater and sat in my car, stared at myself in the rearview mirror and said something that I never thought I would say in a million years. I hated that movie. Saying that was like a punch to the gut. The reality of what was happening hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, Steven Spielberg was my hero. The director whose movies I've seen more than any other director had let me down and let me down big time. As I was driving home, my mind was filled with visions from the film. Prairie Dogs. Surviving an atomic bomb inside a refrigerator. Shia LaBeouf riding a motorcycle looking like Marlon Brando. The list goes on and on. How on earth could this have happened? What's really interesting is up until yesterday, I'd only seen the movie one time in the theaters, and that was nine years ago. I had such contempt for the film that I never watched it again, and I openly engaged in dialogue with other film enthusiasts who all seemed to share the same sentiments. Hell, even South Park parodied what happened just a few months after the film came out. So how did this happen? What was so different about this particular Indiana Jones film? Well, before I attempt to answer those questions, let's chart a little more of the history leading up to the fourth Indiana Jones film. In the 1990s, Spielberg was either executive producer or producer on the following films. Arachnophobia, Back to the Future Part 3, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, Joe vs. the Volcano, Cape Fear, The Flintstones? Yes, I was surprised about that one as well. Casper, Men in Black, and Deep Impact. Now, if you recall, Deep Impact came out the same year as Armageddon, and it was one of those situations where we had two movies about the same subject. Think Volcano vs. Dante's Peak, or more recently, Olympus Has Fallen vs. White House Down. Now, those type of films aren't unprecedented, They happen every once in a while. And rounding out the 90s was The Mask of Zorro. Now, as a director... In the 1990s, Spielberg directed the following movies. 1991's Hook, starring Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman. Now, interestingly enough, this is another film I've only ever seen once, and I really have zero desire to see it again. In 1993, Spielberg directed two films, Jurassic Park, which, (laughs) I mean... What do you need to say about Jurassic Park that hasn't already been said? Now, I understand they made a Jurassic Park movie a couple years ago that made a lot of money, and maybe someday I'll check that one out. Also in 1993, Steven Spielberg made what I have said many times over is probably one of the most important films ever made, and that, of course, is Schindler's List. For his efforts on Schindler's List, Spielberg earned his first Academy Award for Best Director, and Schindler's List would go on to win Best Picture in 1993. Now, Spielberg would take four years off before his next project, The Lost World Jurassic Park. Here's another example of a film that I thought was brilliant when I saw it, but on subsequent reviews, my opinion has sharply changed. 
Also in 97, he directed Amistad. 1998 would see him direct one of the most powerful films of his career in Saving Private Ryan. For me, what's interesting about that film is it was the first movie that I saw that made me truly understand the horrors of war. Now, if you haven't already, I urge you to check out the episode I did on Saving Private Ryan. Now, in the 2000s, leading up to the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Spielberg worked as a producer or executive producer on Jurassic Park 3, Men in Black 2, The Legend of Zorro, Memoirs of a Geisha, Flags of Our Father, Letters from Iwo Jima, Monster House, and Transformers. As a director in the 2000s, Spielberg worked on the following project. 2001's AI Artificial Intelligence. Now, this was a movie originally intended to be a Stanley Kubrick-directed film, but unfortunately, after the untimely passing of the great director, Spielberg was given the task of directing the film. In 2002, Spielberg directed two movies— First, Minority Report, and second, the Leonardo DiCaprio vehicle, Catch Me If You Can. 2004 would see the third collaboration between Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks in the romantic comedy The Terminal, although I really have a hard time finding the comedy in that one, but again, that was a movie I thought was fantastic when I saw it in the theater. 2005 would see Spielberg again direct two films, War of the Worlds and Munich, the latter being nominated for Best Picture. It didn't win in 2005. No, Best Picture in 2005 went to Crash. Crash. That movie won Best Picture over Brokeback Mountain, Munich, Capote, and Good Night and Good Luck. I have never looked at the Academy Awards the same since. Now, taking a look at the Harrison Ford filmography from 1990 to 2008... In 1990, he starred in Presumed Innocent, 91, regarding Henry, 92, saw him play the role of Jack Ryan in the Patriot Games, only to follow up that stellar film with another fantastic film in 1993's The Fugitive. Side note, if you're looking for an excellent discussion on The Fugitive, I recommend the most recent episode of F This Movie, where good friends of the show Adam Risky and Patrick Bromley break down the film in excellent detail. As always, I cannot recommend that podcast enough. 1994 would see Ford reprise his role of Jack Ryan in Clear and Present Danger. 95 would see him star in the remake of Sabrina. 97, we would get Air Force One. Now, can I make one comment about Air Force One? I think it's a great film with some fantastic action sequences, which if you think about it, it's in a very contained space. But something has always bothered me about that movie, and it's the ending. Spoilers for Air Force One if you haven't seen it, but at the very end of the film, The actual plane crashes into the ocean, and it's amongst the worst special effects I have ever seen in my life, and it took me completely out of the movie. Am I the only one that feels that way? Let me know. 1998 would see him star in the film Six Days and Seven Nights. I have no idea what that film is about. I have never seen it, nor do I ever want to. 2000 would be the film What Lies Beneath co-starring Michelle Pfeiffer. 2002, Harrison Ford starred in what I think is a very underrated film, and that's K-19, The Widowmaker. We don't hear a lot about that film these days, but it's it's actually a Catherine Bigelow-directed film, and I think it's fantastic. The same can't be said for his 2003 film, Hollywood Homicide, or the 2006 film, Firewall. Now, like I mentioned in the previous episode, George Lucas did zero directing between 77 and 99. His only theatrical producing credit at the time was for 1994's The Radioland Murders. As far as directing goes, well, we all know this, 99, he did 
Episode 1 of Star Wars, 2002 was Attack of the Clones, 2005 was Revenge of the Sith. However, it definitely needs to be noted for this particular episode that Lucas did some television producing. And in particular, he did a television series called The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles that debuted on the ABC network on March 4th, 1992. Like the title suggests, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles follows the life of a very young Henry Jones Jr., and his many adventures before those of the films. Now, all in told, there were 24 episodes of the show produced, along with four, I don't like to use the term made-for-TV films, they like to say that they were feature-length episodes, 90-minute feature-length episodes. Now, for the most part, the actor Sean Patrick Flannery played the young Indiana Jones. Okay, yes, sir. Mr. Lemley will see you now. Uh, Can I take your coat? Thank you. Mr. Jones, come in. My good friend George White tells me you're smart, that you ran his show like clockwork, and that you say you should pardon the expression, is bacon, that right? Well, I guess so, sir. Wonderful! And in a month's time, you're going back to the University of Chicago where you're studying to be an orthodontist. An archaeologist. Wonderful! You're just the guy I need. What for? Mr. Jones, I got a problem. Out on the coast, I got a moving picture shooting and it's out of control. The director's a madman, a genius. But Sugar, he thinks money grows on trees. Look how we're having to advertise. He's going to make you hate him, even if we have to spend a million dollars of our money to do it. A million dollars. But where do I come in? You don't come in. You go out. Go out where? To Hollywood as my personal representative. I want you to get out there and take charge. Tell that lunatic Van Stroheim he finishes the picture in ten days or else you pull the plugs. Close it down. Here's your railroad ticket. Plus, a hundred dollars expenses. You get two hundred more when you finish the job. This gives you my personal authority to do whatever you think is necessary, okay? Uh... Mr. Limley, isn't there someone already running the studio? My brother-in-law, Izzy Bernstein. Well, why doesn't he just go down... Nice guy, but a schlemiel. Won't answer my cables, doesn't take my calls. Then there's my nephews. I got scores of them out there. Hundreds, maybe. I lost count already, but not one of them can do a darn thing. Well, Mr. Lindley, I think you ought to know that I don't know anything about motion pictures. You don't have to. All you have to do is tell Van Stroheim he finishes in ten days or else it's kaput. What do you say? Well, I think that $300 is an awful lot of money just for delivering a message. I'll pay you an extra $300 bonus if you come through. Mr. Lindley, you've got yourself a deal. Must. However... It should be noted that Harrison Ford did reprise his role playing a 50-year-old Indiana Jones in the feature-length episode, Young Indiana Jones and the Mystery of the Blues. Now, when I say blues, I'm referring to blues music. This is good. The snow's going to cover our tracks. If we don't find shelter soon, it's not going to make any difference. I really hope that you can get us out of this. Oh, relax, Great Cloud. Nobody's gonna come after us till this storm dies down. This is probably the most sacred relic of my people's past. Well, here's a sacred relic of my past.
of working my way through the University of Chicago. You planned that? No. No, I was a waiter. But that's an art in itself. You know, you don't start at the top. You work your way up. Perfect your style. Till you are at the top, like Colosimo's Restaurant. The best food, best service, and best jazz in Chicago. I was crazy about jazz. The television series was the brainchild of George Lucas. He not only created the show, but he co-wrote most of the episodes and served as executive producer throughout the series. Now, the first two seasons enjoyed better-than-average ratings, with the feature-length episode featuring Harrison Ford bringing in close to 20 million viewers. Now, these episodes, including the feature-length episodes, are readily available on YouTube, and I encourage you to seek them out. By the third season, however, ratings fell off dramatically, with the average episode only bringing in about 4 million viewers. The show was quickly canceled. The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles enjoyed longevity throughout not only syndication on a number of different networks, including the Fox Family Channel, but also strong VHS and then DVD rentals. Now, going back to 1980, when George Lucas and Steven Spielberg had secured financing from Paramount to make Raiders of the Lost Ark, they had signed a five-picture deal. Part of that deal was restructured for the television series, thus satisfying the contractual obligations of that deal. In Spielberg's mind, at the end of The Last Crusade, when they ride off in the sunset, that was when the story was over and there was nothing else to do. Spielberg had been quoted as saying he was very satisfied that the trilogy was complete and he was ready to move on with new and different projects. The problem was that the fans were not ready to move on from Indiana Jones. Whenever Spielberg, Lucas, and even Ford were doing publicity tours or press junkets for whatever project or film they were working on, inevitably the subject of Indiana Jones always came up. In fact, in 1994, George Lucas once again approached Steven Spielberg with the idea of bringing Indiana Jones back to the big screen. Now, I think this would have been a perfect time, and you'll understand later why I say this. Now, this time around, Lucas pitched the idea of Indiana Jones facing off against aliens, an idea that Spielberg quickly shot down. You know, it seems to be a bit of a pattern between these Indiana Jones films regarding George Lucas coming up with these ideas and Spielberg quickly shooting them down. His argument this time was, look, man, I I, I did alien films already. E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I, I don't want to do aliens movies anymore. I have to say, I would love to be a fly on the wall for some of those conversations. You have to admire Lucas and his persistence. He knew that it would be impossible to make an Indiana Jones film without Harrison Ford being on board, so what he did in 1994 was hire screenwriter Jeb Stewart, the man who wrote the script for Harrison Ford's 1993 smash hit film The Fugitive, to pen a screenplay. Then he could present it to Harrison Ford in the hopes that Ford would love it, get in touch with Spielberg, and the project would happen. Now, because Harrison Ford played a 50-year-old version of Indiana Jones in the feature-length episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, The Mystery of the Blues, Lucas had advised Jeb Stewart to make sure the screenplay he wrote took place in the 1950s, so it could be specific to the age that Indiana Jones was in the television series. Unfortunately for Jeb Stewart and George Lucas, Harrison Ford passed on the idea outright refusing to even read the screenplay. The project would lay dormant until 2000, when Harrison Ford was honored by the American Film Institute. In attendance at that ceremony was Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and Frank Marshall. The group began discussing how much fun they had making the Indiana Jones films, and they all agreed that they would be open to the possibility of doing a fourth film. Spielberg was the one who was the most reluctant. He was very much against the idea of doing sequels. You know, with the exception of the Lost World and Indiana Jones films, Spielberg really shied away from doing sequels. 
And, you know, rightfully so for the time. I mean, this was a period when sequels were kind of thought of as a cash grab. People really never took them too serious. I know, before you say anything, I know there are exceptions to the rule. Godfather Part 2, Empire Strikes Back, Terminator 2. But these are exceptions, not the norm. Now, shortly after 2000, Harrison Ford called Spielberg and told him that he would be on board with doing another Indiana Jones film. And Spielberg reluctantly said that he would also be on board if they had a pretty damn good script. Now, the time from the 2000 American Film Institute ceremony to the actual pre-production of the fourth Indiana Jones film took almost seven years. Lucas, of course, was busy making his Star Wars films. Spielberg, he always had something going on. He's either producing or directing something. So during the early 2000s, the most that they were able to accomplish would be getting several different scripts written. Now, I found some interesting names involved with the writing of these different drafts of the fourth film. Frank Darabont, who had written a few episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicle, turned out a script in 2002, which involved former Nazis that were hunting Dr. Jones. The idea was quickly shot down by Spielberg, who said he could no longer have Nazis in a lighthearted film after making Schindler's List. Lucas, ever persistent about his alien story, was finally able to convince Spielberg to use the idea when he said the aliens wouldn't be extraterrestrial, no, they would be interdimensional. He also brought up the idea of the crystal skulls, a real phenomenon that was happening around the world, and insisted that that would serve as a perfect plot device. In 2002, one of the hottest directors on the planet at the time, M. Night Shyamalan, was hired to write a screenplay, but he openly admitted to being overwhelmed trying to write a sequel to one of his favorite franchises. By 2004, screenwriter Jeff Nathanson was brought on board. Now, Nathanson had helped write the screenplay for Catch Me If You Can, and he had already written a hit movie with Rush Hour. Both Lucas and Spielberg were happy with Nathanson's work, and then brought on writer David Cope to help finalize the draft. Cope's work included Jurassic Park, Mission Impossible, Carlito's Way, and 2002 Spider-Man. Now, what's interesting about Cope's involvement in writing the screenplay was that he had reached out to Lawrence Kasdan to help him with some of the dialogue. Kasdan, as you remember, wrote the screenplay for Raiders of the Lost Ark, but famously walked away from the second Indiana Jones films due to its very dark tone. Now, Kasdan does not have an official writing credit for the fourth Indiana Jones film. Frank Marshall was brought on board to be producer for the fourth Indiana Jones film, and he was working with a staggering $185 million budget. Now, we can spend a lot of time talking about the casting decisions for the film. You've got Kate Blanchett playing the main villain. You have Shia LaBeouf playing, well, Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, The Son of Indiana Jones, the great John Hurt is in the movie. You have Karen Allen reprising her role as Mary, mother of Shia LaBeouf's character, Mutt. Mama? Stay back! Stop. 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 Don't move. Movement makes space. Space will make you sink. No, I think I can get out if I can just... Stop it. You're pulling against the vacuum. It's like trying to lift a car. Just stay calm. Okay, I'm calm. What is it, quicksand? I'm calm. No, it's a dry sand pit. I'm sinking, quicksand but I'm calm. Quicksand is a mix of sand, mud, and water, and depending on the viscosity, it's not as dangerous as people Oh, for Pete's sake, think. Jones, we're not in school. Don't worry. There's nothing to worry about unless there's a... Ah! Void collapse. I'll go get something to pull you out. Hux, don't just sit there. Huh? For God's sake, man. Go get help. Help. Help! Help! Go! Mud can be a little impetuous. That's well, not the worst quality in the world. Ah. Keep your arms above the surface. When the kid comes back, grab on. Indy, he 
He's a good kid, Mary, and you should get off his back about school. But I Not mean, everybody's cut out for it. His name is Henry. Henry, good name. He's your son. My son. Henry Jones the third. Why the hell didn't you make him finish school? Ma. Yeah. Grab on. Grab. I got it. Ah. Come on, Mom. Pull, 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 pull. Pull. Grab on. Grab it. Let's grab it, Indy. It's a rat snake. Rat snake. Well, this one is, all right? It's not even poisonous. Now grab on. Go get something else. Like what? Like, like a rope or something. There's no Sears and Roebuck here. Grab the snake. Maybe I can touch the bottom. There is no bottom. Now grab it. Grab no, it. I think I can feel it with my feet. Grab the snake. I'm calling it that. It's a snake. What do you want me to call it? Hey, rope. What? She grabbed the rope. Grab, grab the, the rope. rope. Hold tight. It's slimy. <laughs> Get rid of that thing, will ya? Son, I'm afraid of snakes. You're one crazy old man. <laughs> Sean Connery was asked to reprise his role in a small cameo, but turned it down, citing that he enjoyed retirement too much. Now, I'm hard-pressed to really find fault in the casting with the exception of Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf first caught the eye of Steven Spielberg while Spielberg was watching the Disney film Holes with his kids, and Spielberg was instrumental in getting Michael Bay to hire him for the Transformers movie, a film that Spielberg was executive producer on. But I don't really want to talk about the cast of the film. I want to spend some time talking about how the film veered away in formula from the other three previous Indiana Jones films. What we need to talk about on this episode is the production of the film. This is the first Indiana Jones film to be shot entirely in the United States. Raiders of the Lost Ark and especially The Last Crusade were shot on different exotic locations around the world. Spielberg said the reason why he wanted to shoot entirely in the United States was so that he could be closer to his family. Now, to be fair, several different locations in the United States were used in the filming. New Mexico, the motorcycle chase scene in college was shot on location at Yale. And they did return to Hawaii to shoot the jungle scenes. Well, part of the jungle scenes. And I'll get back to that in a moment. But for the most part, this movie was shot on sound stages. And this is where my biggest issue with the movie comes into play. The decision to go CGI heavy and abandon, for the most part, practical effects. Pre-visualization. That's a term you've heard quite a bit if you've been listening to my show as of late. What is pre-visualization? That is the technique of completely animating the entire movie ahead of time using computers. And Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was almost completely pre-visualized one year before the cameras even rolled. Now, pre-visualization can be a great tool for mapping out how particular complex shots will be filmed, and it's used almost exclusively for every big tentpole film that is released. Every Marvel film, every DC film, every Star Wars film... Well, every Star Wars, well, no, now I was going to say, I was going to say every Star Wars film post-Disney buying Lucasfilm, but that's not true. All the prequels were pre-visualized. But the problem with pre-visualization is it very quickly takes the mystery out of how you're going to do something on film. If you're not sure what to do, you can digitally add something to the shot, 
digitally remove something from the shot? Look, pre-visualization has its place in modern filmmaking, and I understand it's not going anywhere, but the first three Indiana Jones films were not pre-visualized. Actual sets were built for the first three films. In the fourth Indiana Jones film, more than 650 CGI effects were added to the film, and believe me, it shows. It's now 2017 as of recording this, and CGI effects still do not hold a candle to actual practical stunts and set pieces. The scene in Crystal Skull when Shia LaBeouf is sword fighting with Kate Blanchett on top of those two jeeps racing through the jungle, it doesn't look real. Not at all. And it completely takes me out of the movie. Don't get me started on CGI monkeys and swinging from vine to vine. That also looked horrible. But with a budget of $185 million, I feel like Spielberg and Lucas owed it to us fans of the original trilogy to produce a film that mirrored the first three movies. I mean, George Miller did it beautifully in 2015's Fury Road. Yes, that film did have a little bit of CGI, but most of the CGI was used to remove stunt harnesses from people really swinging from giant poles and jumping from vehicle to vehicle. And let's not forget the same year that Crystal Skull came out, 2008. We are treated to one of the greatest films ever made, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, a film that used as little CGI as possible. Instead, making the decision, smartly making the decision, to go with massive practical effects. I mean, when that semi-truck gets flipped over, it's really a semi-truck getting flipped over. That shit is believable. I truly believe that Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was doomed from the start simply because of the period of time in which it was made. I feel like if this movie was greenlit for production in the mid-90s, we would have seen a film that more closely resembled The Last Crusade. Instead, we get a film that I believe has kind of an interesting story. I love the idea that instead of Nazis, we're dealing with Cold War villains like the Soviets. I like Kate Blanchett's character, but the CGI effects so diminish the final product that I find the movie virtually unwatchable. And I know this because yesterday I rewatched the film. And when, you know, I'll be honest with you, for the first 15 minutes of the movie, I was kind of on board. I was even able to get past that atomic bomb scene, perhaps because I knew it was coming. The scene in which Indy is being interrogated by the agents of the federal government, I found that riveting. I had no reason to believe that Mac was a spy. He was MI6 when I was in OSS. We did 20, 30 missions together in Europe and the Pacific. Don't wave your war record in our face, Colonel Jones. We all served. No kidding. What side were you on? I think you recognize the gravity of your situation. You aided and abetted KGB agents who broke into a top-secret military installation in the middle of the United States of America. My country. What was in the steel box they took? You tell us you've seen it before. No. You mean that Air Force fiasco in 47? I was tossed into a bus with blacked out windows and 20 people I wasn't allowed to speak to. Hauled out in the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere on some urgent recovery project and shown what? Pieces of wreckage in an intensely magnetic shroud covering mutilated remains. None of us was ever given the full picture. And we were threatened with treason if we ever talked about it. So you tell me, what was in the box? Indy, thank God. Don't you know it's dangerous to climb into a refrigerator? Those things can be death traps. Good to see you too, Bob. <laughs> Relax, boys. I can vouch for Dr. Jones. What the hell is going on, huh? KGB on American soil? Who is that woman? Describe her. Tall, thin, mid-30s. Carried a sword of some kind. Rapier, I think. 
Yeah, that's her. You sure she's here? Here and gone. Who is she? It ain't a spell coat. She was Stalin's fair-haired girl. His favorite scientist, if you can call psychic research science. General Ross. She's leading teams from the Kremlin all over the world, scooping up artifacts she thinks might have paranormal military applications. General Ross. Back off, Paul. Not everyone in the army's a commie, and certainly not Indy. What exactly am I being accused of besides surviving a nuclear blast? Nothing yet. But frankly, your association with George McHale makes all your activities suspicious, including those during the war. Are you nuts? Do you have any idea how many medals this son of a bitch won? Great many, I'm sure. But does he deserve them? Dr. Jones, let's just say for now that you are of interest to the Bureau. Of great interest. The scene in which... Shia LaBeouf and and Harrison Ford escape on that old Harley Davidson motorcycle. That was a lot of fun. But man, oh man, when they get to the jungle, from that point on, the movie literally drives off a cliff. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was released on May 22nd, 2008 and took in almost 800 million worldwide during its theatrical release. Now, the reviews for the film were all over the place. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half out of four stars, while other critics massacred the film for being formulaic and way too predictable. And everyone, everyone mentioned the bad special effects. Now, a new catchphrase caught on shortly after the release of the film. The term nuking the fridge was now being used in place of the famous jumping the shark. What's interesting about the film, it made several top 10 lists that year. Some of them were the top 10 best films, and in most cases, they were the top 10 worst films. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade a George Lucas-produced, Steven Spielberg-directed film starring Harrison Ford won a fucking Razzie Award for Worst Remake or Sequel of 2008. What in the world is going on? I took the film very personal. I'm a child of the 1980s. I grew up on Indiana Jones films. What's really sad about the situation is that I've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark 10 times. I've seen Temple of Doom 15 times. Hell, I had Last Crusade taped on VHS and probably saw the movie 20 times in one month. So when I walked out of the movie theater in 2008 after seeing The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I was firmly convinced that I would never watch the film again. And if it wasn't for this podcast, trust me, I don't think I would have ever. What's funny about this whole situation is that while promoting the Indiana Jones retrospective on Twitter, a number of people sent me messages saying, don't even bother doing an episode on the fourth film. What's the point? Well, the point for me was to express to all of you exactly how I feel concerning what at the time was my favorite director and coming to the understanding that it was possible for him to make a terrible movie and realizing that moving forward I would enter any new Steven Spielberg with a sense of skepticism and that was a really tough pill to swallow now look this is not all bashing there is a silver lining in what I'm trying to say here the first three films still exist and they're still great I remember there was a huge uproar when they were remaking the Ghostbusters film. People were outraged. How could you remake that film? They shouted it from the rooftops. I'll admit I was one of those people that kind of questioned it. But a good friend of mine explained to me in quite certain terms that they can make whatever remake or sequel they want to make. And believe me, they're going to make them. But it doesn't change the fact that the originals still exist. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is, by all accounts, an awful movie. But it does not change the fact that Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, and Last Crusade exist, and those movies are 100% worthy of your time. 
My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for your support. You are, res- you are going to play Indiana Jones again, which is very exciting. Not now. <laughs> we got a whip if you want to bring it out. No? Uh, I, I'm not we quite. We can get you a fedora. I'll, I'll be ready. I'll be ready. I'm excited about it. Why are you excited about it? Because I know this is something you've been somewhat resistant to. Did they finally come up with an idea that you loved? Uh, yeah. Will. <laughs> yeah. Did you demand that they kill Indiana Jones? Are you? No, I haven't read the script. Is your... I haven't read the script. Oh, you haven't even read I'm the talking script. about the contract. Oh, the contract. <laughs> We're here to kid around. I mean, seriously. I mean, listen. (laughs) That's why we came, right? That is why we came. Yes, right. (laughs) You're you're not even getting paid for this. That's how much you love the film. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I heard, anyway. I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, No, I. Listen, the opportunity to work with Stephen again on this character that is... Uh, Stephen who? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have any... Spielberg. Oh, Spielberg, okay. Spielberg. I should have that on the yeah. car. <laughs> uh, Steven Spielberg, a, a chance to, to revisit this character, which has brought... Uh, um, pleasure to so Great many people. Great joy to so many people. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Not to mention me. <laughs> Especially you. No, it's fun. It's great fun to play this character. It's great fun to work with Stephen. I'm looking forward to it. Can you tell us anything about what happens? Do you have Sure, you know I can anything? tell you the whole thing right now. <laughs> Let's begin it. Let's start so. at the beginning. <laughs> Again, you'll find nothing there. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'm excited about it. The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. You'll find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.